A reading from the book of Luke. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them said, one of them named Clopius asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, and before God and all the people, the chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we have hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. You may have a seat. So we are looking, we are wrapping up our series on encountering Jesus. And, and we have this encounter where Jesus, it's post-resurrection, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with these disciples, and he has this conversation. And this is a unique and interesting uh, encounter because we, we've been pulling all kinds of ideas and, and understanding of how Jesus sees us and, and what he wants from us and what it looks like to have encounters with Christ. But this counter encounter is unique. And here's why. Because it is in this passage, in this encounter of Jesus, that we can finally understand how to read all the rest of Scripture. And in fact, the disciples, as they go and plant churches and write the, the Scriptures, continue the Scriptures and write the New Testament, so much of what they write is in light of how Jesus taught them to understand and read and interpret the, the scriptures here in this passage. And here is the understanding, is that all of scripture is pointing us to Jesus. 
This is how we have to read the Bible, okay? Now, I, I don't know whether you grew up in church or you've been reading the Bible your whole life or like it feels like this is a new endeavor. Wherever you're at, what I need you to understand, the reason we gather, the reason we read, the reason we worship, you know what it is? It's because Jesus is incredible. We want to know Jesus. We want to hear his voice. We want his guidance. There are all kinds of ways that we can read the Bible or reasons we read the Bible. Um, sometimes we read it so we can get principles or inspiration. Okay, how do I walk in this way? How do I live a moral life? Um, I've heard people describe the Bible as the owner's manual for life. Okay, in fact, even on Amazon, you can buy a Bible with this cover. Do not buy this. Okay, I don't, don't, don't do it. I'm, I don't know why I'm advertising it right now. Here's the problem. Um, do you know what you do with owner's manuals, you throw them in the garbage, right? Okay. And if you are the kind of person who collects owner's manual, can I just give you some advice? Please throw it in the garbage. You, you don't need it. Your microwave, you are going to be able to figure it out. And if something goes wrong, you can Google it. We do not need owner's manual. So don't, don't use this metaphor. We're trying to be all cutesy saying, oh, this is, this is what it is. No, this is God's word. So how do we approach each story, each passage, each letter? This is the question we need to be asking as we open God's word. How does this passage point me to Jesus? There in the mid-1800s, one of the greatest preachers to ever live was Charles Spurgeon. And when I say one of the greatest preachers to ever live, uh, he, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. And, and, and this is what he was all about, okay? People would go and hear other preachers in that day and age who were also well-renowned incredibly well-spoken, and they would go to him, and they would, they, they would go listen to them, and they would get done, and they'd be like, man, that, that preacher I just listened to, he was the most incredible communicator, most incredible preacher. No one could ever be better. And then they would go listen to Charles Spurgeon. You know what they would walk away saying? Jesus is the most incredible Savior. No one is better than Jesus. Because Spurgeon, it wasn't about him and his skill, and it, it, it was about Christ. This, this is how... He talked about, he started a school in 1858 called the Spurgeon College, or, or, or the Pastors College, later converted to the Spurgeon College. And he was teaching these young pastors and communicators, how do you preach? And I think we have so much we take away from this as uh, not just in preaching, but how we actually read the Bible. This is what he says. Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road that leads to London. So you're in England, there's always a road that leads back to London, right? That, a, a metropolis, a big city like this. Wherever you go, you can always find a road that leads to Portland. Half a block that way, turn left, go straight, it leads to Portland. Because it's built around this center. And what Spurgeon is saying, he's saying the Bible is built the same way. This is what he says. He says, so it is from every text in scripture, there is a road toward the great metropolis Christ. And my dear brother, your business is, when you get to a text, to say, now what is the road that leads to Christ? I have never found a text that had not a road to Christ in it. And if, I, if ever I do find one, I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get to my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we preach the Bible. This is what we're worshiping about. It is the person of Jesus. We do not read the Bible, open it up saying, man, what must I do for God to be pleased with me? That is the wrong way 
for us to read the scriptures. The question is not, how can I be like David and slay my own Goliath? You're, listen, that you're not David, okay? You are like the scared soldier on the sideline for multiple days saying, I hope somebody fights that big guy, okay? Jesus is David, all right? It's pointing to Christ. You do not open your Bible asking which political party will God be voting for in this election? That's not how we read the scriptures. Way too few people agreed with me on that one, okay? The question is not, where can I find evidence that sports my theological view? This is not why we read the Bible. It's not what the Bible's for. What is this book? It's a map to Jesus. It points us to our Savior. It's how we know Christ. And so wherever you are, whatever scripture you're opening, whatever worship you are singing, the question is how is this pointing me to the Redeemer? How is this pointing me to Jesus? This is what Jesus is teaching. Look at it in verse 27. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, again, at the time of Jesus, uh, so right now we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? At the time of Jesus, they didn't have an Old Testament because they didn't have a New Testament. They just had a testament. It was called the Hebrew scriptures. And they broke it up a little bit differently. They, it was called the Tanakh, okay? These three different categories. Torah, which means teaching. Nevi'im, which means prophets. And Ketuvim, which means writings, okay? So they had these three different categories. And so when you read in the New Testament, when it says all the law and the prophets, or all the prophets and the law and the writings, or the writings of Moses, it's a way of saying all of it. And even here, Jesus is specifically saying, he's saying, when Moses teaches in the Torah, guess what he's writing about? He's writing about me. And all the prophets, they're looking forward to me. And even this word for scriptures, it's the word graphe, which is a Greek word, which means writing, okay? So what, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, it's all about me. And, and he walks with them and he's saying, the only way to properly interpret the scriptures, to properly read the scriptures, each and every passage of it is saying, what is this revealing about Jesus? How is this looking forward to Jesus? How is this explaining Jesus? Think of the overview like this. The Old Testament is Jesus predicted. The gospels are Jesus revealed. Acts as Jesus preached by the disciples as they go and witness to Christ. The epistles, Jesus explained. And then the book of Revelation is Jesus expected. Now, here's the challenge. Uh, there's two ways that we can read the Bible. Um, one way is we read the Bible that it's basically about you. It's about us. We think we're the main character in the scripture, right? We're Captain America or, you know, old contact, Captain Hebrew, whatever it is, right? And we think everything is, okay, um, I need to be this person, all right? I need to live up this way. Here's the problem with reading uh, the Bible like that is we, we read it in order to ask, what do I need to do in order to be right with God? And that is a burden you cannot bear. We all fall short. We cannot live up to that. No one is righteous. We, we can't be the righteous remnant. The other way to read the Bible is that it's all about Jesus. And every single thing is not about what we must do 
in order to make ourselves right with God, but what Christ has done in order to make us right with God. That's the point of the scriptures. That is why they are written. And this is what Jesus is teaching here. He's saying, listen, you cannot read the Bible as if you are the main character. We always, we treat ourselves like, like here's us and here's the world, right? Everything just revolves around us. We always act like we're the main character and everybody else is the background. You are not the main character of the scriptures. Jesus is. And we have to read it in light of that. John Calvin puts it like this. Or, sorry, I'll, 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 I'll get to Calvin in a second. Um, let me explain. Uh, let me give you a glimpse of this in the, uh, the Old Testament. Let's, let's look at Noah's Ark, for example, okay? Um, how do we typically talk about and think about Noah's Ark, all right? And I'm gonna use this as an example because uh, Noah's Ark, whether you grew up in church or not, everybody knows about Noah's Ark, okay? Um, and uh, it's because we give our kids these little coloring sheets, do we not? Like, oh, color Noah's Ark. And they're like, mommy, daddy, what's this story about? You're like, oh, this is when God's wrath was poured out and he flooded the whole earth and wiped out humanity. But there's a giraffe colored in, right? It's like kind of a dark story for us to like always be, always be telling. But we, we take it and we, and we moralize it. And here's what we do. Here's how we moralize it. And again, these are actually good takeaways. So I'm not trying to belittle these, but I need you to see the deeper context here. We say things like, we should listen to God when he calls me to obey. Is that true? Absolutely, that's true. And that's what, Mo, that's what Noah does. Or don't care if people mock you. In the end, God will justify you because Noah, he gets mocked and made fun of. And then the flood comes and they're like, let us in. He's like, no, right? You know, like, and so we could take that and be like, no, that's actually true. That, that is a principal reading of the text. Or we say, if you put your mind to it, you too can build something great for God's glory if you just would walk in obedience. And is that true? Absolutely. So all these, these are true moral principles, but here's the problem. When you're reading the scriptures and you see these heroes of the faith, the Holy Spirit is clear in the writings to always point out how broken and flawed these human beings are. Because the Holy Spirit does not want to find us to find ourselves trying to be like these people. Because even these people fell short. You, you know how the story of Noah ends? Um, he gets off the boat, right? All humanity's wiped out. And, it, and his family walks off. And God says to him, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. You recognize that? That's, that's from Genesis 1 and 2. And then Noah plants a garden, plants a vineyard, drinks of the wine, gets drunk and is naked and ashamed before his family. It's a parallel to Adam. Just like Adam was naked and ashamed in the garden, the author, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to show us that, you know what, even Noah falls short. He is just like Adam. He is naked and ashamed in a garden again. We need someone better. And so you read Noah's Ark and you read the story, but what happens if you read it through a Christocentric lens? Let me just show you. Let me just give you an example. Genesis 6.14. It says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, in normal reading, you can just pass right by that. But here's some, a couple things that I want to point out. 
gopher wood, also known as cypress at the time. This is what they made coffins out of in that day and age because it, it was a wood that didn't rot as easy as others. And even dimensions of the ark as they lay it out, people w- would say this is not so much a boat as it was the dimensions of a wooden coffin, okay? And then you read this phrase about cover it with pitch. It's the word kiper. It appears 103 times in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's a word that means cover. So literally it says cover the inside and out with covering. Now, the, this is the only time it's translated as pitch. You know what word this is translated as every other time? Atonement. So you start to read this, and you're like, okay. So this man is called to get into this coffin. And this coffin on inside and out is covered by this liquid, this atonement everywhere. The timing of it. All of these characteristics, when you read it through the lens of Christ, you see over and over, no, this story is meant to point us forward to Jesus. And you think about this story. This is, sto- this is a story about God's wrath being poured out, yet one man and his family would save all of humanity. What's that, what's that beckoning us to long for? It's beckoning us to long for a Messiah. It's pointing forward to Jesus. This is how you need to read passages like that. You say, only by one man entering a tomb can the rest of humanity be saved from the grave. That's what Noah's Ark is all about. When that one man emerges from the tomb, humanity was offered a new hope. The only thing that can save us from the coming flood of God's judgment is by entering into the salvation of Jesus. Now, some of you guys may be sitting there like, ah, that's just, I don't know, I've never, been, I've never read the Bible that way. It feels like a stretch. Well, l- let me just push this argument a little further because we get to the New Testament and this is how Peter writes about the ark. He says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And it only a few people were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. Even the apostle Peter is like, how do we read stories in the Old Testament? They're pointing forward to our Messiah. This is, why? Because the Bible is about Jesus. This is how we read it. We cannot take this, you know, deistic moralism and be like, okay, I'm gonna live a good life so that God is happy with me. You will fall short, but there is one who has, and his name is Jesus. And how do we know his name? We know his name through the scriptures. This is how we read the Bible. And so we need, we need a Christocentric hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is the science or art of interpretation. And what Jesus is teaching us here in Luke 24 is that the only effective, proper way to interpret and understand all of Scripture is through Jesus. What is this telling me about Jesus? 
How is this pointing forward to Jesus? Because otherwise, we get some form of deistic moralism where we're just trying to make this, de- this God happy by our morals, right? That's when people look back and like, man, the 1950s were the good old days, right? That's deistic moralism, which I could, we could use a little bit of deistic moralism these days. It's pretty rough, right? You know what I'm saying, right? Or on the other, hey, you guys are rough tonight. Give me some action. Come on, man, all right? On the other side, What's on the other side is is feel-good self-help. Hey, you can do this. You got this. Even God believes in you. Go get them. But that's not the point of Scripture because ultimately both of those fail us. What we need is not better behavior. What we need is not better knowledge. You know what we need? We need better news. What's better news? It's the gospel. That is what we need to pull from the scripture. That is what we long for. Now, this is what John Calvin says. The scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. That's how you read the Bible. Whoever turns aside from this object, even though he wears himself out all his life in learning, he will never reach the knowledge of the truth. Now, if you've been listening to me for a number of you know, months or years, you know this is probably like a lot more quotes than I typically use, okay? And, and, and here's why. I, I have a reason why. Um, because not everybody reads the Bible this way. And in fact, not everybody teaches the Bible this way. You, there is a lot of churches that are like, no, it's, it's, um, it really is either moralism. I'm going to make God happy, and God's not happy with you if you're not living in a way that's making God happy, or it's feel-good self-help. And there's people who would even argue, like, no, you, the point of everything isn't Jesus. He's in certain passages. And, and, and the reason that I'm quoting guys like John Calvin talking about it and Charles Spurgeon talking about it, and I actually snuck in Keller. I just didn't reference him, but, you know, he, he's, he's always in there, right? Uh, and the Apostle Peter and Jesus, why am I quoting all these guys? Because I just need you to understand that you're wrong, <laughs> Okay? There is a proper way to read the Bible, and it's, it points to Jesus. It is always, only, fully, exclusively Jesus. He is the main character, and he has to be the aim of our church. He has to be the aim of our life. We got a, a review a handful of months ago, and there's only two kind of reviews that matter. Um, five star and one star, right? If you're, gonna, if you're looking up a restaurant or something, like skip all those like wishy-washy people. No, get to the, get to the, you know, the strong ends. I want a five star or a one star. Somebody who's like really passionate, right? And so um, our church, uh, we, got, we got a one star review and I, I wanna read it to you. And let me, let, me just, let me just read it to you. It says, let me begin by saying Rise is a great place if you want a very simplistic walk with God. They seem to have the core belief of the bottom line of everything is Jesus. And they drive that point home. Unfortunately for Rise, that is where the substance begins and ends. They have no room for anyone that is a deep thinker. I got sent that and I was like, that's the greatest review our church has ever gotten. You know what I'm saying? Like, I will put that on my wall. He, like, he may be against us, but he gets it. He's like, man, they are Jesus, 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 Jesus. And I say yes and amen, and that will never change. 
This is who we are. We are a people bought by the blood of Jesus. We are sent on the mission of Jesus. It is Jesus who promised to build his church. It is Jesus who said the gates of hell will not stand against us. It is Jesus we honor and glorify. We do not start with anything other than Christ. And guess what? We don't move beyond Jesus into deeper things. Jesus is the deepness that we long for. That's what we are called to as a church. Whatever the question is, you guys, Jesus is the answer. Whatever the problem is, Jesus is the solution. This is what we're created for. And this is what Jesus is telling these disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's like, listen, all the scripture, the Torah, the writings of Moses, the prophets, the, all, all, all the writings, the poetry, all of it, it's all pointing to me. And all the rest of it, all the New Testament scriptures, it's either revealing Jesus or reflecting on Jesus or anticipating his coming. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. See, when I read this passage, uh, we, we need to understand him breaking this bread. This isn't actually like a Lord's Supper or a communion moment. This is a phrase that is like a common breaking of bread for a meal. But the symbolism is not lost on me and should not be lost on you, that in Scripture, one of the metaphors for the Bible is that it is our daily bread. And as Jesus is sitting before him, they don't recognize him until he breaks open the bread, and then their eyes are open to see him. This is why we open the Bible. We break open the bread so that we can recognize the Savior. The, the whole point of reading the Bible is so that we could learn to recognize Jesus and his, and his voice and how he's moving and working in our lives. We don't read our Bibles to check a box. We don't read our Bibles to make God happy with us. We don't even read our Bibles to acquire knowledge. We read our Bibles so that we could hear the voice of Christ. We read our Bibles so that we would recognize him on the road and how he's moving in our lives, that we just see him everywhere. A handful of weeks ago, me and a couple of other of our other preachers, Jordan and Russell, we went to Nashville for a preaching conference. And while we were there, we were flying into Nashville and staying in Nashville, but the conference was about 20, 30 minutes away, and so we needed to rent a car. And I was like, man, we're getting away for a few days. Like, let's, let's make this fun. And so I rented a Tesla, okay? Yeah, and don't laugh at me. Like, no, it was amazing. Like, don't be jealous, right? It was so, like, it was so fun. I was, like, obsessed with it, right? We got in, and I'm like, this thing is, like, you just boop, and it's like driving, it's driving for me, right? I, I'm going to be at, we're all going to be terrible drivers in seven years because our cars are just going to like, you know, we're going to be like zombies going around. But like every element, I was like, you know, we were just like, oh, this is the map and the cameras around. Everything about it was like excited. I, I literally am pulling over in the charging station. It takes 30 minutes to charge versus five minutes to fill up gas. But I'm like FaceTiming my wife and kids. I'm like, look, it's charging, right? Isn't this fun? Like it tells me how far I can, everything about it. Like I just was so excited. I got back, people were like, how's the conference? I was like, oh, it drove so smooth. <laughs> like, what, right? It was just like this, it was this high, it was such, it was this joy. It, we had so much fun, and I got back, right? And this funny thing happened. 
everywhere I went, I started seeing Teslas. You know what I'm talking about, right? Now, here's the thing. It was a three-day trip. I, I know more are getting on the road, but it was, there was no significant increase before I went and after I came back. Just my perspective changed. You, you hear me? You, you, you know what that's like? Why? It's because I finally experienced a revelation of the revless rocket-like roadsters. That's what happened to me, Right? The glory of these galactic go-karts. The fun of these futuristic four-wheelers, right? That's, that, that is, that's the moment. It's this eye-opening. I see the world differently around me. Everywhere I went, I saw the hand of Elon. Okay, that's probably too far. But, 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 like, <clears throat> but you're tracking with me, right? It, like, you know what I'm saying? This, this, is why we, this is why we read the Bible. It's because... When you read the Bible, especially when you read it through the lens of how Jesus teaches us to read the Bible, and you start having daily encounters with Jesus, and you start hearing his voice, you start seeing him move everywhere. Was he moving, is he moving any more than he was before? No, he was already moving. But you recognize it in a different way. You see it in a different way because you begin to hear his voice. What does he say? He says, my sheep know my voice. If you don't know the voice of Jesus, you know what you need to do? You need to listen to the voice of Jesus. It is a good voice. It is a righteous voice. It is a holy voice. And we have so many other voices pouring into our lives. And they're voices that are deceiving us. And they're voices that are lying to us. And I know in this room right now, there are some of you that are struggling with the voices that you're hearing. Voices that are telling you, you're not good enough. Voices that are saying, you're not loved. People don't want to be with you. There's probably even voices in this room right now that are saying, why keep going? Why keep living? And here's what I need you to hear loud and clear. That voice is from the pit of hell. What you need is you need the voice of Jesus speaking life, speaking hope, speaking love, speaking grace, speaking goodness. And how do we get that? You guys, we get that through the word. That's what the Bible, this isn't some textbook so we can have the right answers. This is a love letter from the Lord to us revealing his goodness, highlighting the Holy Spirit Highlighting and magnifying and glorifying the Son, Jesus. The, the greatest gift I have ever received is this journal. Um, my wife gave, me, gave this to me on our wedding day. And it's a journal she started before she ever even met me. This is, this is her beginning of her first entry. This is what it says. It gives context. It says, Dear Beloved, I don't know you yet, but when I meet you, I think I will know. And I will be more than excited to get to know you the rest of my life. I'm starting this journal for you simply because I've lost faith that you exist. But the Lord is refusing that I give up on you. And then day after day, week after week, she just pours out her heart. Things she's praying for me wounds she's experienced, how hard it is to be at her stage in life and not be married. But my favorite entry in this whole journal uh, was 
June 30th of 2011. It was three days after our first date. And she starts and she just says, I found you. And she starts writing and she says, we're just at the beginning of our amazing journey, so I'm gonna wait to write more, but I just wanted to tell you that I love you. I haven't told you that to your face yet because it's probably too soon, (laughs) but I do. I'm so in love with you and cannot wait to keep getting to know you. I'm praying for you and for us. And then as we dated and as we got engaged, day after day, week after week, month after month, she filled this journal with hopes and dreams and wishes and prayers for our life together and our marriage. And I'm not going to read you any of that because that part's mine. (laughs) But this is precious to me. Because this is my wife pouring out her love. This is precious because this is our Savior pouring out his love. And as we read it, you know what we find? What what we come across is that it's a book that just says of Jesus, I found you. Because he is the shepherd that seeks after his lost sheep. We read the Bible in a way and in order to hear his voice that we would know Jesus. But it's not just the scriptures, it's actually all of life. All of life is pointing us to Jesus. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Listen. The only way to understand the words of Scripture is to understand them in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. But it's the same with your life. The only way to understand the events of your life is to understand them in light of who Jesus is and what he is doing. If you think about every high and every low, it is pointing you to either Christ's goodness or your need from him. That moment you hold a child for the first time in your arms, you understand God's love in a different way, do you not? Like, I never imagined being able to love an object this, like this. Not technically an object, a, a human, right? Apologize to any babies in the room. <laughs> you are people. But we understand God's le- love in a deeper way, do we not? But also betrayal. Any of you who experienced the bitter taste of betrayal you get a glimpse of what Jesus endured for you. I remember when my wife was walking down the aisle, the joy that I had, I finally understood the way that Jesus talks about how he anticipates being united with his bride, the church, in eternity. It's pointing us to Jesus. The lows are pointing us to Jesus. The highs are pointing us to Jesus. Anybody who's held the hand of somebody you love after they've passed, and you just think, this is wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. You know why? Because it's not supposed to be this way. We're created as eternal beings. What does that do? It makes us long for the resurrection. It makes us long for Jesus. Every high and every low is pointing us. All of life is pointing us towards Christ. And there are so many in this room, I know you're going through something right now. It's a betrayal, a broken relationship, a battle with depression, loneliness. 
Maybe you lost a job, your kids are straying from the Lord, you're single and you didn't think you would be, your marriage is slipping through the cracks. I do not know what it is, but I know that its meaning and purpose and hope is only found in Christ because only Jesus brings purpose to all of life and all of life is pointing us to Christ. This is, this is what we need. This is the only way. We need a Christocentric hermeneutic for our life that it would all be interpreted and understand in light of Jesus and his goodness and glory. See, in the scriptures, it's only Jesus that could be the prophesied seed of the woman who will one day crush the serpent's head. That's the opening pages of the scriptures is pointing forward to Jesus. But in your life, only Jesus can defeat the great enemy. You cannot and no one else can. In the scriptures, only Jesus can be the true and better ark to rescue the people from the wrath of God. And in your life, only Jesus can rescue you from the flood of suffering being poured out by sin's curse. This is how we have to interpret and understand what is happening in our lives. In the scriptures, only Jesus can be the offspring of Abraham in whom all nations will be blessed. But even in our life, only through Jesus can his family be a blessing to the world around us. In the scriptures, only Jesus can be the Passover lamb protecting his people from the evil of Pharaoh. And in your life, only Jesus can protect you from the evil one who wants your death. It's all pointing to Jesus. He is the pillar of fire in the wilderness. He is the rock struck by Moses. He is the heir of the Davidic throne. He is the thrice holy Lord in Isaiah 6. He is the greater shepherd in Ezekiel 34. He's the healer of the blind, the provider of the hungry, and the friend to the outcast. He's the new temple. He's the source of living water. He's the manna that gives life. He's the light of the world. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the Father's true vine. He's the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the resurrected lion of Judah, he is the ascended Lord, the ruler of the church, and guess what? He is coming back. He is the answer to all we need. We build our lives upon Christ. And until we have eyes to see this sovereign king ruling and reigning in every area of our lives, our lives are gonna be void of the depth of eternal meaning you were created to long for. That longing that you have, you're like, I, there's something more to this life. You know what it is? It's Jesus and can only be found in him. And here's the challenge. is some of you, even sitting here right now, you're like, but what if I don't see him? What if I struggle even in reading the word? What if I struggle in feeling and experiencing his presence? What if I, I just feel darkness and I, I'm not able to see his glorious light? That is a real struggle that we have. I just want to remind you of this. Uh, there's this wide receiver in the NFL named DeAndre Hopkins. And he has this unique and beautiful touchdown ritual. It's just incredible. Every other receiver, they score a touchdown, what do they do? They dance and celebrate, put the cameras and the lights on me, look at me, see me. I am amazing, I am incredible. Put me on YouTube, put me on Instagram. 
But that's, that's not what DeAndre Hopkins does. You see, about 17 years ago, his mother was disfigured and blinded when a woman she didn't know threw a mixture of drain cleaner and bleach in her face. And over the next 10 years or so of her life, her sight on and off just deteriorated until about three or four years ago when she went completely blind. It was right about the time that DeAndre was ascending in his career. And so she hasn't seen his 888 receptions. She hasn't seen his 11,000 receiving yards. She hasn't seen his 74 touchdowns because the light has gone out in her life. But whenever he scores a touchdown, this just incredible moment happens. Her daughter, who's sitting next to her, grabs her arm and tells her in her ear what just happened and helps her to her feet, and she stands up. And she comes up to the railing by the, by the field. And her daughter leads her to it, and then she leans over and holds out her hands. And she waits, because DeAndre looks for her in the crowd. And he finds her. And instead of celebrating and cheering and saying, look at me, he runs over to his mom and he holds that football in her hands as this beautiful, poetic, meaningful moment of saying that even when she can't see him, he still sees her. Isn't that beautiful? And, and here's what I need you to hear. If you are struggling to see Jesus, if you're struggling to feel his presence, part of the promise of scripture is that even when you can't see him, Jesus still sees you. This is why we long for an encounter because it's, actually, it's not on us. This is why we open the word because it's not on us. This is why we worship because it's not on us. This is why we pray because it's not on us. We serve a sovereign savior king who sees the hurting and the broken and sees the lost and sees the wounded and sees what you are going through and, and he longs for an encounter with you.